put a graphic on the screen. Uh, which one of these is a triangle? Left or right? Left, right? How do you know it's a triangle? Well, because it has a triangular shape. A triangle has the three sides that are straight. Edward Feaster in Five Proofs of God's Existence says this about goodness and about badness. So we're going to come back to the triangle in just a minute. Goodness involves being actual in a certain way. Badness involves a failure to realize what is implicit in the nature or essence of a thing. So in other words, bad, goodness is the nature of a thing, and badness is whatever does not meet the nature of that thing. It applies to everything. Since everything is a certain kind, moral goodness or badness in human beings involves the deliberate choice either to act in a way that facilitates the actualization of the potential that we need to realize to be fully flourishing humans or to act in a way that frustrates the realization of these potentials. So what he says is this. We all were created with a design and a purpose. And when we live up to that purpose and design, it is good. And when we fail that design, it is bad or evil. And so all sin then is a failure to live up to good design that God has given us. So goodness then involves being actual in a certain way. And so to be actual in a certain way, we have to know what the nature or the essence of a thing is. And so a triangle, the nature or the essence of a triangle is it actually has sides that are straight. Three sides, tri-sides, right? Triangles and tri-sides that are straight. A triangle is bad in the extent that it does not live up to its reality or its actualization. So the figure on the right is a bad triangle. Why? Because it does not exhibit the properties or the essence of a triangle. Badness is a failure to live up to that essence. And so the side of the triangle that has the wiggly sides, it is failing to live up to the purpose or the design of a triangle. Now, not having a fourth side doesn't mean it's bad because triangles are designed with three sides. And so the goodness or the, the actualization of a triangle is at three sides, three angles, and they can't be, uh, they have to be straight sides and uh, the angles. And so badness then is that if the sides didn't meet or the, in this instance that are, that are crooked, goodness is primary. So what does it have to do with us? Well, we need to know the purpose of a thing and able to actualize its potential. In other words, to bring out its purpose or to, or to bring out the goodness in the thing. Just like the triangle is good when it fulfills its purpose or when it actually is, is a triangle, the same with us as humans. Sexuality has a purpose. There is a, there is a goodness to it, which is what it is designed for. But anything that fails to meet that is, is, is badness in a sense or is evil in a sense. So you may be surprised today as we walk through this as to what the purpose of sexuality is. It is not pleasure and it is not procreation. Those are the two that we often hear. So today we are going to look at, a, at the reason, the way God designed it, the way that he did. Dan 
Don Schrader is a secular humanist, and he says this, To hear many religious people talk, one would think God created the torso, the head, the legs, and the arms, but the devil slapped on the genitals. And so what we believe is, uh, that's what many people believe when it comes to the area of sexuality. We say, yes, God created us in his image, right? Everything but that. But no, we are human beings. We are encompassed human beings. There is a good design to the way that we were created. And the gospel is God's good news of his sacrificial love for his people. He sent Jesus to what? Save his people. To save people. He not only saves us, but he calls us his own. We are now his treasured possession. And he has a place that he's preparing for us. And David Platt says this, when God made man and then woman and then brought them together in a relationship called marriage, he wasn't simply rolling the dice, drawing straws or flipping a coin. He was painting a picture. His intent from the start was to illustrate his love for his people. Read that again. His point was to illustrate his love for his people. So today I want you to think of God's illustration of his love for you, for his love for mankind, his love for the world. David Platt goes on, for God created the marriage relationship to point to a greater reality. From the moment marriage was instituted, God aimed to give the world an illustration of the gospel. And there it is. Did you know that marriage and your uh, sexuality is to be an illustration of the gospel? It's to be an illustration of the Creator's love for His creation. Turn in your Bibles to Ephesians chapter 5, and starting in verse 25, Paul says this, Ephesians 5, 25, Wives, submit to your own husbands as to the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church, his body, and is himself its Savior. Now, as the church submits to Christ... So also wives should submit to, in everything to their husbands. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her, that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word, so that he might present the church to himself in splendor, without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish. In the same way... Husbands should love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself. For no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes it and cherishes it, just as Christ does the church, because we are members of his body. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. The mystery, or this mystery, is profound, and I'm saying that it refers to Christ and the church. However... Let each one of you love his wife as himself, and let the wife see that she respects her husband. Now, we tend to focus, when we read Ephesians 5, that passage, we tend to focus on the roles of husbands and wives. But the roles of husbands and wives are the secondary meaning of this passage. This passage was not primarily written so that husbands and wives knew how to relate to each other. This passage primarily was written to give us the bigger picture of God's love through Jesus for mankind, illustrated by marriage. This is a metaphor. The metaphor of God's love for us is marriage. And so the, the roles of husband and wife 
are secondary to what God is really trying to uh, show us in Ephesians chapter 5. Here's the point. God created sexuality to tell the story of his faithful love. And most times we don't understand that, or we've never understood that from Scripture. Uh, we never understood how, what sexuality is. And so first thing is, I want you to get this, is that sexuality, and we're going to unpack this over the next uh, uh, weeks as well, sexuality tells the story of God's faithful love. There's something uh, bigger going on here than just the roles in Ephesians 5 of husbands and wives. And the point Paul's making is that marriage is an illustration. So when you look at marriage, you um, should think of Jesus' love for the church. It's the, it's the point to the bigger spiritual reality of what that is. And so sex education is not teaching about sexuality, but really what does sexuality teach us in the context of the gospel? Pope John Paul II wrote this, that the message of God's love and faithfulness is written on our bodies. Did you know that? That God's love and faithfulness is written on your body as a, as a creature, as a, a, as a man or a woman in, in all that you are. That God's faithfulness is written into your... You are a living illustration of God's love. Your body is, and especially in the area of sexuality. Especially our sexuality, he says. We see the testimony of our greater spiritual needs. Intimate knowing, passionate love, and fidelity. And Jesus taught by pointing to physical creation. What did he He said, Jesus came and he wanted to teach us about the kingdom. He wanted to teach us about the great spiritual truth. So what did he do? He didn't pull people away and do all these charts that nobody ever understood and all these big... What did he do? He said, oh, look, there's some sheep. I'm the good shepherd, just like the shepherd is for those sheep. The sheep and the shepherd is a metaphor for Jesus' love for the church. Jesus talks about the kingdom growing and multiplying. So what does he do? He says, oh, here's some seed, right? You plant the seed and then the, the seed starts to grow. And so Jesus uses seed as the metaphor. The, the sheep isn't the point. The seed isn't the point. What's the point is those things are illustrations of a greater spiritual truth. And the greater spiritual truth is what? It's God's love for his people. And so what in creation could help us understand God's love, his redemption, the, the price that he paid to send Jesus to save us from our sin? What greater thing in all of creation could be a metaphor for that than sexuality? I mean, sheep and shepherds don't quite do it. Seeds and soil don't quite do it. But human sexuality is the metaphor. It's the thing that God has created so that we would understand what kind of God he is and the love that he has for us. On your notes, I put this. The definition of God's love from Dr. Jack Cottrell says this. It's his self-giving affection for his image-bearing creatures and his unselfish concern for their well-being that leads him to act on their behalf and for their happiness and welfare. That's God's love. If you want to define what God's love is and want to know what God's love is, that is it right there. It's his affection for you and for me, his image-bearing creatures. We are made in God's image. And so his love causes him to what? To act on our behalf for our welfare. And so that's why when God says, do this or don't do this. Why is he saying that? To ruin our fun? No, it's for our welfare and it's for our benefit. Do you know most relationships in life are contractual? 
we make a contract, right? And we promise to stay as long as the other person keeps his or her promise. I'm only in this as long as you do what I think you should do. And, and as soon as you don't do what I think I should do, I'm out of here. That's, that's a contract. But romantic relationships, right, based on this type of love are based on what? This implicit promise of happiness. What, whatever you do uh, for me, I want, I want it to make me happy. And as long as you don't make me happy, I'm out of here. That's, that's the contract of most of our relationships. Think about the relationships that uh, hurt you the most, right? It was what? It was a contractual kind of thing. I love you. I'll be with you. I'll be your friend as long as you do X. Kids are notorious for this, right? Oh, so-and-so is not my friend anymore. Well, what did you do? Well, I had lunch with somebody else. You see, that's, a per- that's based on a contract. And the person gives you a contract and you say, as long as you meet these requirements, I'll be your friend. Don't meet these requirements and I'm out of here. You see, that doesn't show us God's faithful love. Paul wrote this, nothing will be able to separate us from the love of God that's in Christ Jesus. God's love is not contractual love, it's covenantial love. He makes a covenant with us. He enters into covenant with us. It's not a feeling but it's a promise. Matt Chandler said this, the couple makes vows to each other because God has not just called them to profess more romantic love to one another, but to profess a particular kind of love, the kind that endures, that sticks, and commits. You see, God has created this idea of sexuality in our being so he could communicate to us a covenantial love. Sexuality is important because it's a holy metaphor of who of a God who invites you into a covenant love with himself. We're going to unpack this this morning. This is why the Bible talks about sexual immorality and it talks about divorce. John Piper says this, the ultimate reason, not the only one, why we are sexual is to make God more deeply knowable. I don't know if you ever thought about that in the area of sexuality. God has made us sexual beings in order that he would be more deeply knowable. That kind of turns the conventional wisdom right upside down, doesn't it? Like that's, we are never taught that. We are taught sex is what? Uh, to be fruitful and multiply. All, but no, the, the primary reason is because God says, I want you to understand my love for you. So I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to create you as sexual beings. And in that, you're going to learn my love for you. Your sexuality shows God's intention to draw you into this covenantial love, the celebration of intimacy with him and the devastation of betraying him. That's why God created us that way. So how does this relate to our sexual questions, our experiences, and our frustration? Well, it does it in two ways. Sexual desire draws us to covenant. Sexual desire was created in us... And it has an all-important truth that we were made for love. We, we were designed to bond, right? People despair of their sexual appetites and their, uh, some of their preferences. And they pray, they pray this, Lord, I just want, God, I just want you to take this away from me. And Matt Chandler says this, you really don't want God to take that away from you. He said, you shouldn't ask God to take away one of his gifts, 
Rather, we should ask him to help us steward it well and lead us into a covenant relationship where we can enjoy it according to his design. And so what happens is God creates us with desire and that desire is supposed to say, Lord, that's the desire you have for us. And so help me steward this in a way that would honor you. The average man and woman in today's culture seeks their outlets for their desires. The hookup culture, pornography, sexual addiction, casual sex, seeking a partner primarily for sexual compatibility is the new norm. And so what we're doing is we're missing God's intent. We are looking in other places for only what he can give us. And all those other things are cheap imitations and substitute for the love that God has for us. Here's what no string sex does in our culture. It's reinforcing the conclusion that sex is primarily about what we can get. And we are missing our createdness. That's not why God gave it to us. Do you know millennials today are even giving up relationships because they're too hard? Like, they're, they're giving up sex because it's too hard. No, they're not giving up sex. They're giving up sex with real people because it's too hard. God bless those millennials, right? They're, right? I mean, it's, they're giving it up. It's too much time and trouble to have a real person. And so that's why pornography is on the rise. Uh, you know, casual sex is down, but everything else is up, right? Because, because it's, it's very difficult. All those things are empty. Listen, marriage is not even the ultimate fulfillment, It is a metaphor for the truth of longing to be known, of wanting to be embraced and accepted by Jesus. We have done a disservice in the church through the years by saying that God wants you saved and wants you married. He doesn't. He doesn't want you married. He wants you to love him with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. And if you get married, that is great. So we push people that they don't have any meaning and have any fulfillment unless they're in a relationship. And so the world then disciples us, disciples us on top of what we have inadvertently taught in the church. And it's no wonder we're all broken. It's no wonder we're all a mess. You see, our goal in life is not heterosexuality, but it's holy sexuality. That's the goal. So we push people into these things. And so the marriage is what? It's the metaphor. It's not the goal. It's just the thing that says, if you have a marriage that honors God and that's Christ-centered, that's not even the point. The point is always Jesus. It begins with God and it ends with God. It gives spiritual significance not only to marriage, but to celibacy as well. You see, celibacy is not a rejection of the kingdom, but it's embracing the ultimate purpose and reason for sexuality. You see, the one flesh union in a marriage is just the foreshadowing of something that's going to be more grand and glorious. Wedding feast of the Lamb. One day, oh glorious day, what? Jesus is going to come back and we're all going to be part of the wedding supper of the Lamb. And so in sexuality, that, that what that does is it is even a foreshadow of something greater and that's the spiritual fabric of this universe. Single Christians often ache for and longing because this covenant love hasn't come. Even people who are married, right? We still have this longing because the shadow will never be fulfilled in, 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 this, in, this, in this world. Marriage is a shadow. It's a metaphor for the, the, the grand relationship of Jesus and his church. You see, a good marriage can give us glimpses of oneness, love, and intimacy... But we still long for more. We just still do. 
If you think your marriage is going to fix everything, you are really blind. Just ask some folks who are married, and you're like, man, things just got a lot worse. It's like, yeah, right. Before, I only had to deal with one sinner. Now i got to deal with two sinners. And then we have other little sinners in the house. It just gets worse from there. You see, marriage is not the ultimate fulfillment. It's the foreshadowing of, of what the ultimate fulfillment is, is Jesus and the church. And so sexual desire... So God has given us so that we would, what we long for covenant. We long to be in that relationship. Why? To teach us that's how God thinks about us. Every longing you have for a relationship, you need to turn that around and say, that's how God longs for me. It's not about me just getting this relationship, but God has placed that in me so that in, in the very fiber of my being, I can understand, I can know God's longing for us. In fact, his longing so grand so great that he sent Jesus to die for us. And so it's, it draws us into covenant, but also this, it celebrates covenant. You see, two of the greatest challenges surrounding sexuality are this, convincing single Christians to abstain from sex and convincing married Christians to have more sex. That's just the truth of it. It gets relegated to the back burner in marriage. There's differences in desires. There's guilt and shame from past experiences. You can't figure out how to make it a priority in the midst of work and family demands. And so what it does is it it gets relegated. And so, but, but what does it do? It celebrates the covenant. It's a celebration of God's covenant promises to us. Timothy Keller says this, sex is supposed to be a sign of what you have done with your whole life. And that's the reason why sex outside of marriage, according to the Bible, lacks integrity. You're asking someone to do with your body what you're unwilling to do with your life. You're saying, let's be physically vulnerable to each other. Let's do physical display, but disclosure of who I am, no way. It lacks integrity. It's not whole life vulnerability. We are willing to get naked physically, but not naked emotionally and spiritually, and psychologically, and so we hold it, and that's why it lacks integrity. But the Bible says this, it celebrates covenant, where it's not just naked bodies, but it's naked souls and beings coming together. And so what you're doing is you're saying, I'm opening up to you physically as a token that I've opened up to you every other way. But so often in our culture, we don't have the every other way. We want to stay closed off. That's why the hookup culture is so prevalent that people don't even want to know their names. Don't even tell me your name. All I need is a number and a place to meet. You see, intimacy in marriage is a mysterious metaphor for the celebration of God's love for us. And so our relationship with God isn't sexual, obviously, but he's created sexuality within marriage to teach us about our covenant love with him. In the Old Testament, when Adam and Eve um, were created, the Bible says that uh, it's, it's, the, um, it's the euphemism for to know. Um, that Adam knew his wife Eve, right? The word is yada. Uh, if you're a Jerry Seinfeld uh, fan, yada, yada, yada. And so it's the word yada, to know. Guess how our relationship with God is described? Yada, to know, it's the same thing. And so God has designed this sexuality to say, that will teach you about the love you are to have for me, the commitment that you are to have for me. So it teaches us, it teaches us two things. So God created sex and marriage to, in this metaphor to teach us uh, the first thing is intimacy. 
Many couples who have had sex have never experienced intimacy. You can share your body without being fully present to each other spiritually and emotionally. And what does that teach? It teaches us that God is distant. But in the metaphor of marriage, in the intimacy of marriage, what does it teach? It teaches that God is not a distant God. God's call and his love for you is not a simply a sterile call to obedience. He invites us to enter into the celebration of covenant love with him. David's wife criticized him for his public display of worship. And in 2 Samuel chapter 6, verse 22, David was going to have none of that. He says, listen, I want my love and my worship of the Lord to express what I really feel. And so he says this in 2 Samuel 6, 22, I will become even more undignified than this, and I will be humiliated in my own eyes, but by these slave girls you spoke of, I will be held in honor. David says this, my love for the Lord is so great. If I want to hoop and I want to holler and I want to clap my hands and I want to dance and I want to become undignified, that's your problem, not mine. And so God, what does he teach us? That's intimacy with God, right? That's intimacy with him. That, that love so overwhelms us, right? That, that we, we just, uh, the emotion arises within us. So it teaches us intimacy. You see, there's a difference between knowing about covenant love and celebrating covenant love. You can do all the Bible studies in the world and never really know God. How do you really know God? Through that intimacy with him. Bob Sorge says this, God's mandate is to establish our primary identity as lovers of God. When somebody asks you the next time, who are you? What do you do? You say, I love God, right? That's our primary identity. Usually our primary, primary identities is our jobs and what we do. But God's mandate is what? To establish our primary identities as, as his child, as lovers of God. By the time he's finished in our lives, we will be lovers who work rather than workers who love. A lot of times in our spiritual life, we're just workers. We're doing the thing. It's sterile obedience. It's, it's just, but we don't really love. And God wants us to love him with what? All of our heart. Soul, mind, that's everything you have. That's your, that's your intellect, your emotions, your strength, your body, right? And so we start out as workers and, oh, oh yeah, love for God. But there's got to be a maturing process in our life where now we are lovers of God. Oh, and by the way, I do serve him, but I love him with everything that I have. And so, in, so that's what the sexuality of marriage teaches us. It teaches us intimacy. Not with each other, but with God, right? That's why we put that into us. The second thing it teaches us is sacrifice. Sacrifice in covenant. Listen, God's love for us required a great sacrifice. He sent his son to suffer and give himself for us. Someone once said, you know the value of something for the price that's been paid for it. Do you know your value is the life of Jesus? Do you know your value is God's son? The value that you have is the price that was paid for you, and that is Jesus. And so if marriage is a picture of God's covenant love for us, why should marriage not also require unselfishness and sacrifice as part of that picture? Now, I get it. Unselfishness and sacrifice are not words we associate with marriage, necessarily. It's what we can get from it. It's what we want the other person to do for us. We want the other person to complete us. Listen, nobody's going to complete you except Jesus. In fact, 
uh, uh, some people that you want to complete you are going to tear you apart. It's just who we are as fallen people. And so barriers in a marriage relationship, really in any relationship, what it is, it's an invitation to stretch our love for each other. So am I going to do the right thing even though you are doing the wrong thing? And, and when I do that, guess what I get a better picture of? Jesus' sacrifice for us. You see, when I say, I'm not going to do it, you apologize first. I haven't talked to you for three weeks and I don't care. Uh, you're the one. And what we're doing is we're missing God's sacrificial love for us. That's why sacrifice is part of the marriage covenant. That's why in Ephesians chapter 4, Paul says this in uh, verse 25. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. You show me a selfish husband and I will show you someone who is not Christ-like. You need to sacrifice you, that's, that's why Paul, or uh, Paul wrote that in Ephesians, by why God put us together in marriage. God's like, I want to teach these humans about my love for them. So I'm going to put two people that generally love each other in a covenant relationship, but they're going to annoy each other every once in a while. They may have a, just a drop down, drag them out, blow up every once in a while. But that's not what I want them to teach them. I'm not, I don't want to teach them about that. Here's what I want to teach them about my sacrificial love for them. That while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. And so in marriage, that's why sacrifice is a part of marriage. It's a tangible way, Paul says, that a, a, a husband in Ephesians 5 can be like Christ in self-sacrificing love. So every time I grit my teeth, every time I'm not going to do this, Every time, I have to remember God's teaching me in a very physical, practical way that Jesus sacrificed for me. Now, here's the thing about Jesus that's different than Jesus and me. Jesus did it perfectly. I don't always do it perfectly. I sometimes don't do it at all. But that's why we need grace. You see, that's why we have Jesus comes uh, who shed his blood for us. So for every uh, great love story, we know there are men who haven't ended well. There's 22% of men and 14% of women have cheated. And it's higher now in the younger generations. And here's why sexual infidelity is a tragedy. It's a broken promise. Why? Because it teaches us or it shows us about God's love for us. You see, infidelity is no longer viewed as a big deal. J. Allen Peterson said this, well, once, what once was labeled as adultery and carried a stigma of guilt and embarrassment is now an affair. A nice-sounding, almost inviting word wrapped up in mystery, fascination, and excitement. Even followers of Jesus justify it by convincing themselves they, are, they have fallen out of love. God wants me to be happy. And he understands my, God understands my marriage. And he says, that he, I, he understands. And so what we've done is we have broken a promise or broken a covenant. You know, throughout the Old Testament, God draws a direct parallel between a broken spiritual covenant and a broken sexual covenant. You read the Old Testament. And the reason God said, no other gods before me, that you need to be loyal to me, is because he likened it to how we feel when we are betrayed. He likened it to how we feel when someone betrays our covenant, our love, our friendship, our relationships. And so God says, you want to know how I feel when you betray me through your sin? You are going to experience it in your own life. 
through the betrayal of your covenant. That's why God calls them prostitutes and adulterers when they worshiped other gods. In fact, Ezekiel 16, 32 says, you adulterous wife, he's talking to his people. You receive strangers instead of your husband. You see, the, the metaphor of marriage not only helps us understand God's love for us, but it also demonstrates how destructive it is when we walk away from God spiritually. You see, our, our, who we are spiritually, we're created in God's image. And God says, how, how am I going to have humans understand what it means for them to walk away from me, to spurn my covenant, to spurn my love? And so every heartache that you have ever had in your life is a reminder to us, not about the heartache, but remember it's a metaphor and it's a metaphor for something bigger. And what's the bigger thing? It's God's love for us. And so we understand how God feels for us when we walk away from him because others have walked away from us. You see, listen, we're, we're all in this together. Someone said we're all bent rulers trying to judge other people as crooked. <laughs> right? We are. We're just all broken and we're trying to judge other people as crooked, you see. But our sexuality is a metaphor for God's covenant love. A metaphor is a picture that what? It stands for a greater truth. And here's what it is. Sexuality is a metaphor for God's covenant love. You see, our bodies tell the story of God's covenant love. That's why God designed sexuality. That's the purpose for why he's given that to us. So that when we, when we experience that in a relationship, in marriage, that we understand his covenant love for, it, for us. Here's the great promise of the gospel. While we have broken our covenant with God, he doesn't break it with us. God loves us, and we walk away, but God doesn't say, he's done that already. It was the flood and all that. He doesn't say, I'm done. He says, you repent, you come back. My love is constant, you still come, right? So relationships where at least one party is imperfect always entails vulnerability. Now think about this holy God who has a relationship with us. And this holy God comes down in relationship with us. He is the perfect one. We are the imperfect one. And so any relationship that you have been in where the other person is less than perfect, you know that's vulnerable. You want to be open and they don't return your love. And, and, and all of those, there's been stories of, of unrequited love, unreturned love, right? And so it's, a, it's, it's not only a possibility, it's inevitable. Do you know when God created us, rejection was not just a possibility, but it was inevitable. It was going to happen. But out of his love, he created us anyway. You see, sexuality is not simply a matter of doing what is right and wrong. But stewarding that is about being true to the metaphor of a covenant. We're going to talk about uh, in a few weeks about um, same-sex marriage and all those things. The deeper truth, the deeper thing underlying this is God's covenant love for us. Written in your life, in your body, in your sexuality, it's a reminder of God's love for us. Now, how will that thought change our attitudes toward how we view sexuality? How will that, how will that thought change how we view the, the world's discipleship of us? You see, it's stewarding our sexuality. about It's, it's being true to the metaphor of the covenant. It's the, it's the purpose for what it was created. It's, it's the triangle that God has set into place. And when we honor that, it is good. When we uh, have its potential and its, its possibility, it's good. But anything less than that is bad. So perhaps you're single. Your longing for intimacy 
is a reminder that you were created for more. Your longing for intimacy isn't a reminder to get on Match.com. That's not what it is. It's not like, oh yeah, I got to go update my profile. That's not what your longing for intimacy is. Your longing for intimacy, if you are single, is a reminder that you were created for more. An ultimate love relationship with God. You see, the answer isn't to have sex, but to pursue God who created you with those deep longings. He created you with those longings so that we would be reminded not to go have a hookup, but to worship. That's why the longings are there. We've just, we've just not stewarded them well. We've not directed them well. We live in a culture that somehow says single people are broken. That's why we're always trying to fix them up. Single people are not broken. They are a reminder of a single man's love for the church. Who's that? Jesus. And Jesus is where now glorified and he is honored. And so the, the longing that we have, that unfulfilled longing, is what it's a foreshadowing of the greater reality. What's the greater reality? It's Jesus' love for the church. Maybe uh, for, for marriage, it's, that it's about the physical um, expression of the covenant promise, or is it about pursuing your own desires? You see, is it about intimacy and sacrifice, or is it what I can get out of this? You see, even the grief of broken promises and hard hearts reminds us why God is a jealous God who asks for our faithfulness and to worship him more. So, you see, pain isn't bad in itself. It's whatever the pain is associated with that's bad, right? So you fall down on the ice and you hit the back of your head and you cut your lip and you get a couple stitches. The pain, the pain, hypothetically speaking, if that would ever happen to you, the pain is, the pain isn't the point. It's the thing that's the point, right? The pain is the response to the point, And so the pain that we have in life, it's it's whatever it's associated with that's bad. So the pain that we feel, the pain isn't bad. That's just telling us that something is off, that something's not right. It's a failure, what? To live up to our potential. You see, our sexual choices have true spiritual significance because the gospel is written in, in our sexuality. If you don't remember anything else today... That's what, we need to, that's what we need to grab onto and remember. Our sexuality is a metaphor for the gospel of Jesus. You say, well, that's kind of odd. <laughs> I never thought about that. Exactly. That's why we're in the mess that we're in. That's why we don't have a, a compelling story to give to the world about why we believe what we believe and why God says what he says. And all we say is don't do this and don't do that. But there's a bigger reason. And the bigger reason is the metaphor of God's covenant love for you and for me. Written in your sexuality. Now Chandler goes on to say this. The man's desire for a bride exists to show us that God in Christ desires people. At a wedding, we celebrate that a woman's affections are won by this man. Similarly, we are celebrating that Christ wooed his people away from their idols, away from their self-reliance, and into his tender and loving care. In your personhood, in who you are, tells the story of the gospel. It tells the story of God's covenant love.
for his people. It tells the story of love fulfilled and of heartache and heartbreak, but all of that is wrapped together. So we come to our time of prayer, our time of decision, just time of commitment. Our, our just, just Here's what God wants. He wants our hearts. He, he, wants what's, he, he wants what's in us to, to, to love him with all that we have, to love him with what? All of our heart, soul, mind, and strength. Would you do that today? Just, just give God your heart. You see, our human sexuality is a beautiful thing that God has created. In, in human beings is the story of his faithful love. Of a love that never gives up, a love that always goes on, of a love that sacrifices. And that's the God who right now is drawing us back to him. The longings that you have for others, the longings that you have in your marriage and the longings uh, even in a parent and child, all of those longings are there to point us to a bigger longing. And that's the longing that God has for us. So when I go through my days and my weeks and I am faced with those things in my life, the first thing I need to think of is how does this teach me about God's faithful love for me? All of life points to the truth of the gospel. The gospel is the subtext of all that we see and all that we experience. The gospel says that we are all sinners. That's why relationships fall apart. That's why things don't work the way that they're supposed to do. The gospel says, you know, you can't save yourself. You can't do it yourself. You can't be good enough. You can't be smart enough. You don't have enough money. You don't have enough spiritual credits to do this yourself. And so what we need is a substitute, someone to pay the penalty for me and for you. And that was Jesus. But it's not just that Jesus paid the penalty. Paul says that we, 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 we apprehend it or we grab a hold of it by faith. It's not that everybody gets the benefit. It's those, Paul says, who apprehend it by faith. We receive it by faith and we trust him by faith. Would you do that today as we pray? Maybe you have a prayer need, something going on in your life, totally unrelated to what we're talking about. The guys will meet you in the back to your right. But for all of us to be reminded of the metaphor that's written in our createdness, the metaphor of who we are. Would you please stand?